All right. Hello, everyone. It is your host, Julia. It is Monday, March 28th. 2022 it's 12:05 p.m. and i'm here today with a very special guest david donkey Woo! hey y'all this is Gary C. <laughs> i accidentally hit up the podcast there was one of our own yeah i'm so thrilled to be here julia thanks for having me and you're, you've been doing such a great job i'm just i'm honored to be a guest thank you and we are always always excited to have you here so Today, we're here to kind of discuss the overall political climate of 2022 with you um, and kind of what's been going on in some politics. So totally awesome. So I guess the first question to start is, how are you feeling about the overall political climate of 2022? I think it's two, it's two things. It's a combination of two things. And sometimes like which one is winning in my mind depends upon the day. Uh, but the, at the national level, when you look at kind of the possibilities and the fight to vote, um, I don't feel great. I haven't felt great for a while. It's been very challenging. We haven't been able to secure the protections that we wanted to at the Congress. And when we look across state by state, um, more than 20 states have passed laws making it harder to vote since January 2021. So I, I feel really um, discouraged isn't the right word. Um, angry, disappointed on that, in that respect. At the same time, the second way that I feel, though, is that I look at each state where we compete um, and do work, and we have to think of um, the United States as 50 independent states. We have to think of that way. We don't have uh, any election where whoever wins the most votes nationally wins an election. That isn't the way I vote. The presidential election is not about national votes. It's about state-by-state state tallying of votes. Um, so when we look state-by-state, state, which is exactly what the elections are that we're focusing on this year. And um, when we look at those, there are these idiosyncrasies and dynamics state by state that give me a lot of hope, actually. They give me a lot of hope. So like if I'm looking at the, like if so I think about it, like I'm looking at a, a painting and if I'm looking at it from like way zoomed out, like I'm like, uh oh, we're in deep trouble. Okay, like way zoomed out. But when we zoom way in, and like I get real close to the screen, like I'm doing right now in this recording, <laughs> or real close to the microphone, I actually see hope. And that's part of what the way is CP works is that we find hope in those individual organizational relationships, state by state. So I'm of those two minds right now, Julia. Okay, so this is fascinating. So in your analogy, we're looking at a painting. And Overall, maybe the painting looks a bit, a little bit messy, a little bit unclear right now, maybe a little bad. <laughs> but then yeah. when you zoom into like those individual portions of the painting, you're like, wait, we've cleaned up a few lines here and there. The color composition over here looks great, but it's really, you find that hope in kind of those smaller elections, those state by state elections, or even more local than that, correct? Yeah, I, I would say in the states, I, I get I'm finding some possibility and hope in U.S. Senate elections, in governor elections, in House of Representative elections, in attorney general and secretary of state, and then also in state legislatures. Um, not all the way down to mayoral or uh, school boards. I just don't have that level of analysis. But 
certainly from like the, the U.S. Senate level down to local state legislative elections. Yes. And I think that I slightly amend my word. Hope is there. I would say possibility mm. is the better. So like possibility is more an unknown. Like you don't know, but there's possibilities. So I don't think I'm really at like hope. I think I'm at possibility. There's the communications professor part of David. <laughs> I, I certainly love the word possibilities over hope. Sometimes hope can be a little vague, but possibility yeah. feels more tangible for sure. So let's let's hear some more specifics. So let's let's hear the bad news and let's hear the good news. Like what are some worrying trends you're seeing on the national scale specifically? And then where are you finding possibility in these smaller um, state by state elections? Sure. Well, the biggest issue on the national level, well, there's two, is that Joe Biden is not a very popular president. Um, he's not he, he, even those who support him don't support him as strongly as they did before. Um, and so the reality is that presidential approval, which is what we'll, we'll kind of like call this category approval for the president is low. And when when it's low, um, that makes it really hard for the party that they're part of to succeed in passing their agenda or to win elections. And Joe Biden's approval rating is where, where it's at in the low 40s right now, 40% approving of him, which suggests that the elections of 2022 are going to be really bad for the Democrats. Okay. Um, let me just ask really quickly. Um, could you explain why President Biden's approval rating is low? What are some what are some of the biggest factors that are contributing to such a low um, approval rating? Sure. Well, if you look at uh, at uh, COVID, we've been in COVID for two years and and two plus. And the sense was that we were getting better last year, like we were on the way. And then Omicron hit. And I think the reality is that Biden hasn't solved it and the U.S. government hasn't solved it. So he takes responsibility for that now. Mm. Right. So that that's a biggie. Another bit is that. Um, inflation, which is the rising price of, of products, um, is rising at a high level. Some of the highest has been in decades. And so people are paying more for milk, more for gas. You know, gas is so expensive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and people feel that on an everyday basis when they buy food or when they pay for gas or they go to the movies or whatever. So he's, he, he takes a hits for that. Um, and he bears some responsibility for both of those. He does. Mm. Um, and also people who really strongly support him are disappointed that he hasn't achieved some of the things that we really care about, like the uh, cancellation of student loan mm. debt, okay, or immigration reform, or in the case of CP, uh, getting get pushing hard enough to pass voting rights legislation. Um, so there are there are some things that are that are just big picture that he hasn't been done that he's kind of bearing the weight for. And then there's the folks who like, look, I voted for you and you haven't delivered for me. And I'm frustrated, too. Right. OK, absolutely. So there's there's the approval rates of, of Biden that are not good. And mm -hmm. so that's not that's a bad thing negatively if you want to support the policies that he generally supports or the Democrats generally support. And the second thing nationally that's really not good is all there have been so many laws passed in states making it harder to vote, more difficult to vote, making voter identification laws even tougher, reducing the number of days you can vote in person, making it more difficult to vote by mail. And when you put like that is state by state, but there's 20 plus states that have done that. So when you're zoomed way out, 
you're still seeing a lot of negativity across that map. Right, absolutely. And can you give some, maybe given a specific example or two of like some of these um, voter suppression bills? Sure. In the state of Texas, they passed a whole host of bills, one of which requires a voter when they vote by mail to write on the outside of their ballot um, uh, what their ID number is for the for when they register to vote. Everybody gets an ID number, and the, the ID number is either your Social Security number or your driver's license number. And you need to remember what that is and write it on the outside of the ballot. It has to be done exactly like that. You have to get it right, and it has to be on the outside of the ballot. And so a large number of people do not recall which of their ID numbers they used when they registered to vote. So they just guess and they don't know. And then a lot of them don't know to write it on the outside of the ballot, uh, outside of the envelope, I should say, outside of the envelope. And so it's really, really confusing. So in Texas, in the primary elections, which were at the beginning of May, uh, March, the first elections under these new rules, 20% of people who voted by mail had their ballots rejected, 20%. And in 2020, before this law went into effect, it was about 1%, okay? So a 20-fold increase, and that is particularly for voters um, who uh, unfortunately tend to skew Democratic, um, younger voters of color, uh, voters who move more often, okay? So that's an example. Another example is that in um, the state of Arizona, another state of our focus, of our focus just like Texas is, uh, they are they are attempting to eliminate what's called the permanent early voting list, PEVL, P-E-V-L, the permanent early voting list. And what happens in Arizona is that once you decide you want to vote by mail, you're put on a permanent list to always vote by mail unless you change your mind. Now they're changing it so that everybody, there is no, they try to, they're trying to make it so that there is no early voting list uh, so that everybody who wants to vote by mail, which is what early voting is, will have to re-request to vote by mail and will have to essentially re-register to do so. And we're talking millions of people. This The permanent early voting list has been a thing, a very positive thing in Arizona for decades. So these are just two examples. And you're like, well, why would they be passed now? Why would we do these things now? Because the voting turnout in 2020 was so high. It was some of the highest in over a century in this country. And it was particularly high among uh, constituencies that are Democratic, African-American, Latino-American, Asian-American, Native American, um, and particularly among young voters. So given that's the case, then now the Republicans in these states are trying to make it much harder and they're succeeding so far. And and hearing about all of these bills being passed is fascinating because, well, on these like educational tours that I've taken with CP, you you learn that these bills are neutral on their face. They're facially neutral. But in reality, the way that these bills are passed and what like certain things that they're targeting make it harder for certain demographics to vote. Right. For example, the one in Texas. Right. If you register to vote maybe 60 years ago and now you're about 80. Right. It, it would be hard for you to remember whether or not you use oh. your social ID or your ID number. Correct. Exactly. Right. Be, uh, how could you, unless you were like Julia, who writes down everything? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the unless you're like really, really, really detailed, who would keep that information? Right. 
absolutely yeah so it's it's fascinating and obviously like bills like the one in arizona where you have to constantly re-register to mail via ballot you would have like people who are worker people who are working professionals who don't have the time or ability to do that it would make it harder for those certain populations to vote yeah or who have moved because uh, they got to get their notification that they need to re-register by mail. They got to get it by mail. Okay. Right. So y younger people move a lot more than older people. So younger people vote Democratic. So this isn't this isn't as much about race per se in this example. It's right. about just younger voters move a lot more. My son has moved three times and he lives in Southern California going to school. He's moved three times in a year. Well, how would they ever find him? Right. All right? <laughs> I mean, me as a like a young postgraduate student, like I've I've also moved three times in the past three years as well. So obviously, like measures like that would make it harder for someone like me to vote as well. Exactly. Right. So so these are two some of the two of the like worrying national trends, like one Biden's public approval rate and then two kind of this wide scale pattern or trend of voter suppression bills being passed. Yeah, right. exactly. Is there more? <laughs> um, let's see, nationally. No, I would say those are the two biggest things that are out there. Inflation is really being felt by many Americans and also just this kind of sense of, are we ever going to be past the pandemic? Mm, right. Right. I, I've, I mean, I've definitely felt both, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's fascinating hearing like, well, I, I go on Reddit sometimes. Reddit is like a social media thing. And there's people on there who talk about like the cost of living going up, wages being stagnant while prices, consumer prices continue to go up. So it's those, these are very real trends that I see occurring in my own life as well. Exactly. And you're, you're, you're a bullseye for uh, Demo the Democratic Party as a voter. Okay. Right. You're younger. You're a woman of color. You're a woman mm -hmm. and you're a woman of color. The, each of those categories, younger, female, person of color, are folks who tend to vote highly Democratic. Right. Okay. Right. Not 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 guaranteed, but highly likely. And so what do you feel? You probably feel some discouragement, some 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 frustration, some disillusion. And you're like, ah, I don't know. Does it should I even vote? And you know, that's that's where a lot of Americans are who support Biden. Mm. Right. But those who don't support Biden, they're not they're fired up. They're like, I'm voting for sure. Right. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So so what are some some trends you're seeing on state by on a state by state level that are where you're seeing possibility? Sure. Well, one thing that's happened already, and I did a lecture on this a month and a half ago. Um, part that was the first lecture in a series I'm doing calling which has the title, How the Democrats Could Win in 2022. The first one was that the redistricting process, which is the redrawing of congressional and state legislative lines that happen every 10 years, has been um, not as not as negative for the Democrats this year as was expected. Mm. So the Democrats, let's just say they're kind of holding their own right, right now. Okay, So that's, that's real. That's happening. Um, the second possibility is that, uh, is that the... And I use possibility as like, I don't know how this was going to turn out, but 
maybe there's some possible some good some good things here is that the republicans are really being ripped apart right now by whether or not they support ukraine and also trump trump in general and so there's divisions within the republican party over ukraine and trump and there is a kind of rule of of kind of like that that works in politics that the party the political parties that are divided lose and political parties that are united win all right um so right now the republicans are united in that they don't like biden and the democrats whereas the democrat the democrats are a little bit more divided around student loan debt and voting rights but on issues of ukraine and um uh and uh just despising trump and the kind of folks who lie about our elections the dems are united on that and that that is the, the the Trump influence is playing out state by state because he's endorsed candidates in states. So in Georgia, in Texas, in Arizona, in uh, Ohio, in North Carolina, he has endorsed candidates who uh, are struggling. And so if he would just stay out of it, it would help the Republicans a lot if he would just stay out of it. But he's he can't do that because he, he wants all the energy and the attention. So Trump's meddling, I like that word, has <laughs> Trump's meddling is making it harder for Republicans. So that's actually how if you go state by state, you can see where his meddling is impacting that particular state. All right. Yeah, this is um this is a fascinating trend and a topic that I'd like to delve a little bit more onto. So how is the war in Ukraine kind of impacting the political climate in the US? And could you explain that relationship with Ukraine and Trump and Russia a little bit more for some of our viewers? So Trump embraced Putin, the latter Putin, who's what the uh the I don't think his president is his official title of of of, of Russia. Um and, and so Putin's actions today, which are dictatorial and warmongering and, um, essentially get connected to Trump. Okay. Because Trump was such pals, such buddy buddy with Putin. Um, and so in the United States, when Americans think about what Putin is doing in Russia, they can't help but kind of think about the American equivalent to them, which is Putin. All right. So. I think a lot of Americans look at the war in Ukraine as a kind of proxy or a like a pseudo version of how an autocrat, a dictator in the United States would operate if they had the chance, if they had the chance. Mm. Like Putin has made arguments about elections being fraudulent. So has Trump. All right. Trump, uh, Putin exercises power without any kind of buddy really challenging him. Trump kind of did the same. Okay. Um, Putin thinks that he is above the law. Trump does too. And so, so I think a lot of Americans look at what Putin is doing in his invading of another sovereign country and say, like, man, if that's, like, that's what it could be right here if Trump was here. It could be that if he was still in power. And so that is actually united Democrats because they're like, yep, see, see how bad it would be, see how bad it would be. And it is split Republicans because some chunk of them love Trump. And then there's some chunk of them that don't love Trump. All right. Right. So th those two are intertwined of like Putin is kind of Trump and it's reminding these Republicans of like, I understand I'm, those of us that don't like Trump, we're getting reminded of it. And he, he keeps meddling and trying to influence us. And we don't really want him here. He's like the, the really bad person that you don't want to enter the schoolyard. And all of a sudden he's back in the schoolyard again. And you're like, get mm -hmm. the hell out of here. 
okay? And he, but he's the bully that like keeps coming back in because that's when he feels his power. Right. Okay. So, so one area of possibility is actually Trump's meddling, as you say, in these state elections. What are some other trends? Okay. Sure. Another possibility is that the uh, the Democrats um, are making it in, in the campaigns that they're running in these states are very much focusing on state focused topics, education, health care within the state, um, uh, fighting against inflation and prices. And uh, those state by state focus, what we'll call kind of a laser focus on your on your local politics is how you win when the national environment does not favor you. All right. You have to run a Georgia centric campaign if you're Stacey Abrams running for governor in Georgia or B. Nguyen running for secretary of state in Georgia. You have to run an Arizona specific campaign if you're Katie Hobbs, who's running for governor. All right. So Beto O'Rourke in Texas has to run a Texas specific campaign where he is. He's focusing overwhelmingly on uh, electricity and the dangers in that state of how poverty and uh, fraud in the Republican leadership has led electricity to be way overpriced and to be uh, really put people in danger in the state because they don't have heat. All right. So when you run state specific or local specific races, um, which is a choice of how you run your campaign, then you have a chance in a, na- in a when the national environment does not favor you. And the Dems are, are doing that. And that's good. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, with with Beto, it's I think he's capitalizing off of the memories of what happened last year with the electricity crisis, where people were like without electricity or heat for like a week. And a lot of like Texans lost their lives due to that. So it's it's fascinating that he is now using like electricity as a big running point for his campaign. Yeah, totally. Uh, And. So when I say possibility, um, what nudges the needle or moves us one pos- to one side of that possibility or the other then ref- falls on our shoulders. Do we do the work? All right. Do we support partner organizations? Do we travel to Texas, to North Carolina, to Georgia, to Arizona, to Wisconsin um, to do work in these states? And like, I, I, I'm kind of the person who's like, I don't have to have a guaranteed win. I just want a chance. I just want mm-hmm. a chance. Okay. And, and then it comes down to us. Are we going to, are we going to do all we can? And it's a position of privilege for people who live in a blue state, like, like we, like most people at CP do to lo- live in that blue state and say, you know, it looks like you're all messed up in Texas or in Georgia. Eat. You go figure it out. I'm not going to waste my time. That's that's a position of like aloofness and privilege. All right. And to me, that's what we are not. We are not that we make a commitment to care about people in other states and to want to support them and help them. And they want us to come and help them as long as we come on their terms to help them the way they want us to. And so to me, then it comes to us. Are we going to look at possibility and say, Yes, we can. Or are we going to look at possibility and say, nah, can't really do anything there. And I'm always on the side of like, yes, we can try. Yes, we can try. 
we have to try. In fact, we owe it to the universe to try. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure we have a field work trip going out to Texas soon. Which is very we do. Exciting. We have a Texas trip coming up. Uh, we have a Arizona trip coming up. We have a North Carolina trip coming up. Wisconsin is in the field right now. Uh, South Carolina. So all of that's on our join a team page. Right. Which, which is, uh, under our fieldwork tab on our webpage. Which is commonpower.org. Yes. Yes. So, so another, another question that I think has been in a lot of people's minds and in the news recently is what's going on with the Supreme Court. Would mm-hmm. you be able to kind of give like a short explainer and kind of talk about the new Supreme Court nominee? Sure. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States has, uh, at its full size, has nine justices. And right now, six of them um, are distinctly conservative. So it's it's a definitely conservative, tilted Supreme Court. And it's going to be that way until the composition of the court changes. Um, there is one of the more liberal justices, Stephen Breyer, is retiring at the end of his current court term. And so there's an open seat. And the, the, the president of the United States gets to nominate a justice, and then the U.S. Senate conducts hearings and votes to approve or not approve that justice. So we've just been uh, had a nomination, and then we've just had hearings for uh, a justice, uh, Katanji Jackson, Katanji Brown Jackson, who is going to be the first African-American female on the U.S. Supreme Court. And she is a spectacular jurist. Um, and from everything we see in her hearings, is just an incredibly um, composed and wise human being. And so she is almost certainly going to be approved by the U.S. Senate because the Democrats have a slight majority in the U.S. Senate. So if all the Democrats vote for her, she'll get approved for sure. I think there'll be a couple Republicans that will vote for her, too. Um, not a ton, but a couple. So I expect there might be around 53, 52, 54 votes for to approve her. This will all happen in April. Uh, her nomination will come to the full floor for a vote and discussion in April. And we're going to, you know, barring something that is not foreseen at this time, have our first African-American female justice in the Supreme Court. I couldn't be more excited. Okay. Right. I couldn't be more excited. She, she's an incredible nominee and she'll diversify the court in a way that has never occurred, which is a, just a, a travesty. Okay. Just a travesty that we're at this point, but I'm excited by her by this action and there's I may not be um I am I am not fully satisfied or happy with the presidency of Joe Biden and the way the Democrats are operating in the Congress but the judges the federal judges that have been being appointed by Joe Biden and being approved by the Democratic Senate have been far 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 more diverse than they've ever been and so that that's a win that's a major win it's a good thing and she's an example of that Absolutely. And how do you feel that having an African-American woman on the Supreme Court as a justice with a lifetime appointment will affect cases or bills that are reviewed by the Supreme Court? You know, the reason why we want a diverse elect, uh, elected body of officials or appointed officials like they're appointed to the court um is because people bring a range of life experiences to their, to their thinking, 
and to their understandings and to their questions. Um, and so uh, having an African-American female represented on the court means that we have not a guarantee, but a better likelihood, a better possibility of some perspectives that haven't been ever represented there. Okay. It's not that they couldn't be represented by somebody else, but they just, the, the probability, the possibility of them being represented increases. Okay. So we never want to go to the point of assuming because of someone's gender or race that they are going to absolutely represent certain viewpoints, but they increase the possibilities of, of it. Okay. And so the possibilities of someone who might think about what it means to be an African American person in this country who is treated certain ways, often negatively by the police, by our justice system, by our educational system, is really something we should have on the Supreme Court. Okay. And if, if it was up to me, we'd have a, an even more diverse court. Of course, we'd have some Asian American and within Asian American, we'd have diversity. All right. We'd have more women. We'd have younger and not just old, not just people that are roughly 50 and older. Okay. Um, so that's the perfect. We're not close to the perfect. So every step that gets us better is, is better. Right. This is amazing. This has been a fascinating half an hour exploring the crazy yet possibility filled political climate of 2022. David, do you have any additional thoughts or conclusions that you'd like to wrap up with for our viewers? Yeah, I would just say that that uh, we're in CP common powers in this work for the long term. We're not just in it for any single election. Um, we've had some successes, a lot of successes, and we're probably in a politically different. We are in a politically difficult era right now. A six to three conservative Supreme Court means a lot of decisions that I'm not going to agree with and I'm and are going to really, really hurt people, really, really hurt. Um, we have a, a, a Republican friendly national political environment, which means the elections this year probably will be difficult for Democrats. Um, in the midst of that rea those realities, I would just encourage people to not focus on the outcomes, but to focus on the actions that we can take. We're not responsible for the outcomes. We are responsible for what actions we take. And if we allow the potential likelihood of negative outcomes to impact our willingness to try, then we've lost already. All right. We, we've lost already. If, even though it looks difficult for us politically, we cannot allow that to prevent us from trying. And so I would just say to everybody, the politics look like possibilities and we have the chance to tilt the scales. No guarantees with one exception. There is one guarantee. If we don't try, then we're for sure going to lose. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a wonderful thought to end off on. What is that? What is a simpler, less like deep version? You miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, right. That's the Julia. That's the Julia like uh, phrasing of it. That's the that's the Gen Z translation. You miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. <laughs> I love that, Julia. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, David. This was amazing. Thank you so much for your insights, taking the time out of your busy day to join us and share your thoughts with our With CP podcast listeners. 
Yeah, thanks, Julia, for doing these podcasts, everybody. And uh, thank you're a 